The A-Fire Podcast. Risk. It's at the center of the investor's process. What is it? How should I price it? What will happen to my investment because of it? To help, to help talk a little bit more about a different kind of risk, I've asked Jeff Adler, the vice president of Yardi and someone well-known as a thought leader in our industry, uh, to talk a little bit about something he's discovered around political risk. So, so Jeff, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Jeff, you wrote a fascinating piece for the Spring A-Fire Summit Journal that maps out U.S. political risk city by city across the country. And I found some really interesting insights. Tell us a bit more about this mapping of political risk. Yeah. So uh, about a year ago, we began, there was a lot of discussion about rent controls. And we began seeing it kind of pop up in Oregon and uh, and uh, New York and California, and it, it began prompting me to think about uh, political risk um, in a different way. I mean, we, over the past uh, 10, 20 years, really didn't have to think about local political risk in the United States as a variable, as an input into an investment strategy analysis. It just kind of waved it away and life went on. Um, and so it, I began to think about, well, what if we had to explicitly consider as a variable, not as a, a knockout, as a variable, an input into an investment strategy decision? How would we approach something like that? And we did take it a bit of a lens towards uh, multifamily housing. That's the, the lens we approached it. And the way I was thinking about it was, if I were to invest in another country, being an American, part of what I'd have to bring to investment committee is a political risk analysis or the rule of law and other uh, environmental uh, components of an investment strategy. Well, if I'm investing in the United States now, uh, shouldn't I use that same thought process, right? Shouldn't I think about this? And it would be quite uh, relevant for investors who are outside the United States investing in the United States. Shouldn't we look at the political risk of each geography in the same terms that you would look at investing in a country? And so that was kind of the, the initial impetus and the thought process. And Really, what we tried to put together was a structure. And, and I don't want to claim that we, what we put together is some be-all and end-all, and there's no other way to look at it. We just we said, well, how could I approach thinking about this? Uh, how could I approach thinking about societal and political risk in the housing context? And so that's when we began saying, okay, well, there are some short-term issues and some long-term issues. And, and we began... You know, coming up with three criteria for short-term risk, three criteria for long-term risk, and being simpletons, we just you know, equally rate it, right? And again, just as a, as a point of departure. And so we landed on initially six variables, the overall level of housing affordability, and the less affordable, um, presumably the more pressure there would be issued to do some kind of restriction. On the other hand, if it's less affordable, it means that rents are high, and that might be a great place on its own. You'd say, oh, I should invest in a place with high rents. That's a good thing. And this was like, well, you're also building a political risk factor underneath it. And we've seen that in California and New York. 
Uh, we all then looked at also affordability, uh, the philosophy toward affordability. If you have a problem with affordability, do you want to build your way out of it using the, the tools of the free market? Or is the philosophy in the local governance one of command and control and sort of the, the, uh, not the use of the free market mechanisms to achieve those goals? We then put uh, a third one, which is urban policing and security. What people sometimes forget, if people have short uh, memories, is the, the urban renaissance in the United States really only started in the late 80s and early 90s with the control of crime in the core urban areas. And as that crime progressively declined, and we started with uh, Louis, Louis Giuliani, I think uh, uh, Chief Bratton, and that, so that style of data-based uh, uh, policing, as long, along with uh, the philosophy of James Q. Wilson, the broken windows effect. The combination of that created this massive uh, decrease in crime and opened up more areas that were secure that then created the conditions under which uh, development could flourish. And we had seen, starting in 2015, the beginning of a reversal of that, it's called the Ferguson effect, um, where that was actually retracing and law and order and the rule of law um, was being eroded in certain urban areas, particularly around um, what to do with, uh, with homeless populations. So we added that. Uh, and then we added three other, three long range issues, social mobility, Right, the the more the more mobile a society is, the more the less pressure uh, there is uh, to sort of lash out at you know landowners or property owners, uh, and so we put a social mobility with a tax burden, uh, both individual and business, and then unfunded pension liabilities, which are basically you know a, a deferred tax effect. So we put those together. We know. now in conversations that I've had with investors, you know, well, maybe you should put in climate risk, climate change risk, like. Well, yeah, that's a really good idea. And and so, again, I don't want to say that the approach we took was was the only approach or the only one approach you could, or even the best approach. What we thought important was that we took an approach at all to, explic to, to explicitly put these issues on the table. And I, I would say, you know, I did it with a certain, a very, not, not a certain amount of trepidation, a tremendous amount of trepidation, just because these topics are fraught with potential for misunderstanding, potential for being accused of somehow uh, acting in a sort of untoward, unbiased way. And, and so, quite frankly, for a long time, I never wanted to even touch the topic. It was more that our clients and friends in the industry urged us uh, to approach the topic. And so, again, I think you saw in the, in the magazine, in Summit, we laid out a set of kind of like, you know, conditions or, or context wish to think about this. And and uh, so far, it's been very well received. People sort of, again, in the professional real estate community seem to understand that it's an input. It needs to be sort of adjusted, modified, but at least explicitly discussed. Yes. And so, and I think that was the main point I was trying. Well, and certainly you're going to have different house views in terms of, you know, one one person's political risk may be another person's opportunity, et cetera. Um, and there, and this certainly the U.S. right now, um, unfortunately, and much of the Western world these days seems to be in an environment of, of heightened 
uh, polarization politically. So it becomes very difficult to have these conversations. And yet, these are the same kinds of conversations that any cross-border investor has whenever they're going into another country. The idea that the as the rise of the cities uh, in, in the U.S., it really is important to understand that each of these cities have their own quirks, their own risks. And I, I, I love the way you've laid it out. I, I'd love for you to address, though, one thing that I think pops out at people right away is they look at your at your map where you've kind of placed out which cities you think are the highest risk and which are the lowest risk. And your highest risk metros are probably on everyone's wish list in terms of markets in the US that they would like to invest in, such as Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Washington, DC, and Boston. So how do you think that plays out? Here we are. These are the core markets. These are the most attractive markets to a lot of investors. Um, how do you how do you think that investors should approach this kind of risk matrix and understanding what they're doing? Well, if you look at the, the risk matrix, you know, Boston has a much lower risk score than does Los Angeles. Mm. So there is gradations. If I were to pick the top six or seven kind of go-to cities, core cities, right? Um, there is a significant difference between, quite frankly, even how we rate Chicago and Boston rate uh, much better than Los Angeles and San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So so there is you know, variations within uh, even the courses. But I think the way to think about this is, let's say you're, you decide you're going to invest in this, in this context in multifamily in Los Angeles. Okay. Now, understand that under the current, and this was before COVID-19, so I wanna, I'm going to pile on on top of it. Yeah. On, on top of what's happened you know, since, uh, since mid-March of 2020. But going into to, to, to tw March 2020, if you're going to invest in Los Angeles, you do need to understand that land use is restrictive, rents are high relative to income, they've been growing faster than income, the philosophy and the political environment is to distrust the use of open and free markets, there is an emerging homeless problem that's been burgeoning and is uncontrolled, and these are all significant risk factors. Now, if you choose to invest in those markets, but okay, on the positive side, right? There's a lot of social mobility in Los Angeles. People can rise very, very rapidly, and there isn't a, a, the unfunded pension liabilities aren't that bad, and yeah, the taxes are are high. Okay, so so short term, it's got significant risk factors. Long term, actually, two of the three risk factors aren't that bad. But understand, if you're going to invest in Los Angeles, you need to be aware that these are things that could come at any point to bite you, right? Walking into it, you already had a, a statewide cap of, uh, I think, a CPI plus five. Remember, but being a, being a statewide cap, the law can change. The law cer certainly currently says uh, 15 years and newer assets are exempted. Okay, but the law can change. Right, the law put in 15 years uh, as an exemption. The law could change it to 10, could change it to five, could change it to zero. Right? So the risk exists. Now, you might choose to say, I think the likelihood of that changing is low. Okay. But you can't say that it's zero. You'd have to, you'd have to put a probability around that risk and then weigh it against the benefits associated with a, a type, uh, maybe a very difficult market to build in. And so restriction supply. Understand that with the restriction supply, at the same time, 
becomes the potential. There's two ways to handle restriction in supply, right? You can mandate a reduction in pricing, or you can respond to it by enabling more supply. So understand, you might just say, gee, that, you know, but if you only looked at uh, a, uh, an underwriting packet that had a 10-year projection, and the 10-year projection was you know, 4% a year forever, Oh, the numbers look good, mm-hmm. but it's understanding what's behind the numbers. What are your assumptions behind those numbers? What are your factors? Be explicit. And that would be my whole kind of thought process is be explicit about the decisions you are making. Be clear, okay? Because you wait your 10 years into an investment. In year three, something could change that investment. Now, as, as, as the case is in you know, New York and Los Angeles, in, a, in, a, in response to the COVID-19 crisis, right? Um, there were moratoriums on evictions. There were uh, rent holidays in April. There were discussions involving both city councils about, well, maybe we'll make, a, we'll make a evictions paused for, you know, uh, 12 months, 24 months. Understand that things happen in emergencies that sometimes don't get unwound. Also understand that, for example, World War II created the circumstances under which New York City installed temporary emergency rent control. It was always designed to be a, a temporary measure, but it never was temporary. And I can tell you that, for example, when I talk to German or Canadian investors, the biggest concern on their mind, because they have lived in, in sort of highly regulated regimes is that the restrictions that have just been put on, well, how quickly they're going to get taken off. And it's particularly relevant for the German investors who, who, who see, you know, German rental housing is more bond-like or more of a utility than it is a sort of a value-add investment with, with high uh, IRRs that we've seen in the United States. So, so that was kind of the, the thought process is, is, is understand the political risk associated with, with each um, city. And we've tried to come up with a way of, of, of thinking that. And we provide, our, we provide our methodology and our sources. It's not a, we're not trying to sort of build a proprietary toolkit. Um, and, you know, if you disagree or you think we should add, we should change the weights or you think we're, we're leaving that a meaningful factor, put it in. Put it in, you know. Um, I, but you know what I would say, and one thing that I would kind of highlight is when we did this, and we did first, we did, I think we did 20 or 30 cities, which were a combination of core cities and considered tech hub cities. Um, I it was interesting to me to see cities like uh, Boston and, and even Chicago rank higher or have less political risk than I would have thought, and a city like Seattle actually have more risk than I would have thought. So it was intriguing to me. And so if someone had to say, okay, among the top six cities, I'd say, well, it would appear that Boston actually has the least political risk on that factor, okay, than the other cities. And so should you take that into account in your investment strategy? Well, I think it should be a consideration. I I love the way that by contextualizing this risk question and being able to do a comparative analysis from city to city, it helps clarify what 
could be a very vague uh, kind of analysis. Well, there is political risk, or we're worried about this particular thing in this particular city. But to see it on a on a relative basis, it, just simply mapping it and being able to see all these cities side by side with their various low, you know, uh, short term and long term risks kind of explicitly laid out. And, and you're right, there are lots of other factors that probably could be considered depending on what your investment strategy is. But just being able to say, all right, well, what is the comparative risk of of Boston or Chicago? What is on the margins, the difference between Seattle um, and those other cities? You know, to really understand what that is. That's certainly becoming clear right now in, a, in an environment of crisis uh, where a lot of these risks that were theoretical, perhaps in, uh, you know, a few months ago when you were assembling this have become very real and are certainly playing themselves out. I think as investors come into these markets again, as the dust settles a bit, um, I think these kinds of analysis will probably increase. How do you think investors should use this kind of tool? Where do you think this takes them in terms of more accurately pricing their risk? Well, in my mind, it, it, it kind of at least forces out of the open and forces an explicit conversation around something that has truly, truly been implicit. Um, and, and I would say even even places where you think, oh, there's no problem. Like, for example, Charlotte, North Carolina, right? Oh, there's no problem there. Well, we actually surfaced a problem that it's very has very low in social mobility. So even a, a city that maybe has no short-term risks may have a long-term risk lurking. Okay. And so it's really a, a question of, all right, well, how are we going to handle these risks? How are we going to either price these risks in? How are we going to build um, escape clauses or how are we going to build responses to what these risks could be? And I think it's interesting that whenever we have gone through a significant crisis, it allows us to it allows us to kind of look at risk in a different way. Uh, I don't think anyone was seriously talking about terrorism risk in the United States before 9-11. Um, and now we're sitting here in a, in a new environment. You obviously pulled this together uh, months before COVID-19 became a reality. If you were to go after this again, what do you think would be, and, and specifically in the political realm, what do you think might be added in a matrix like this, given what we're learning already, and we still have a ways to go, uh, from the, the political outcome of, of the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, so the COVID-19 crisis, um there's a public health issue, there's, there's a demographic issue, there's a desertification issue, and there's a political risk issue. Okay? So in my mind, the political risk component, it, it, what's happened in COVID-19 is uh, in, it's turbocharged the elements of political risk that exists. Okay? So if you look at where was the risk before, Los Angeles, New York, and you'll see that taken up several notches. Okay? Uh, where there wasn't risk at all, well, there was some risk put in because you had eviction moratoriums in states that you otherwise would never have had, right? Uh, so, so it's really just stepped things up as opposed to, you know, it wasn't really a sea change. It was more of a step up. Um, and also the speed at which these things go away okay, is also a bit of a, will be a bit of a step up. And remember, there was no such thing as the idea that you would have a four-month more national moratorium on all GSE 
who owns you couldn't evict anyone whatsoever for any reason right like it, it wasn't just people who and, and i have to sort of contrast it with the way the u.s multifamily industry has handled the situation proactively talking to residents working out payment plans having you know kind of a charitable funds to help people financially has been quite frankly amazingly modern you know amazing okay and and so in, in my mind it's kind of like it's and if you look at the at the rent payment tracker, you know people are making their obligations. By the way, April multifamily ended up three maybe three four points below a month uh, the month prior to the year prior. Relatively speaking, small small potatoes. Yeah, and it, and that's because of the efforts of more institutional owners operators of multifamily kind of going out proactively. Yes, I think I think I, I think it's absolutely the case. And May is even tracking even even better than April. Okay. On a, on a you know, kind of same day basis, um, so uh, I think what's what I would what I could say is you know the political risk has really uh, been sort of amped up is what I would say, and and the speed at which things get peeled off I think also right you're not going to have forever you know um, eviction moratoria in places like Texas there was an emergency measure it was you know, you know kind of to try to make sure that people weren't you know when they couldn't move, being forced to, to move, right? So the uh, courts were, so you can kind of get that, but it's also the, 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 the instinct is to relieve those as quickly as possible. Where I would contrast that with New York or Los Angeles, where the instinct is, well, how long can we keep this going? <laughs> Versus how long can we peel it back, right? Um, and and, and that's, that's the difference. Now, and these same markets are the ones who are the most restrictive in adding supply, right? So that is, again, it's a double-edged sword. If you happen to be the one who has supply and, and other people can't get in, right, then, gee, and the markets are allowed to operate freely, well, then, you know, rents are going to rise faster than income because of scarcity, simple sort of economics, right? The double-edged sword is... Someone can say, well, there's a shortage of housing and we can't add more, not knowing that they could if they change the regulations. And therefore, we're going to sort of do something that suppresses the expression of this demand supply imbalance, which is what rent control is about. The whole California rent control is, an, is basically a means of, ex, of suppressing the expression of a failed supply policy. That, I believe, is a whole other podcast. Right, but 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 th but that but that once you get into a cycle, right, where the thought process becomes detached from the underlying um, free enterprise responses to market imbalances, right, then you keep going often down that same road, right, and, and that is separate than what I would say would be a demographic. There's a whole discussion around. Uh, how much de-densification will occur, right? Which is really the question of this urban centers were built upon dense densification, mass transit systems, um, uh, aggregations of people, teamwork working together, right? The creative process, intellectual capital work concentrated in intellectual capital hubs. And the biggest of those intellectual capital hubs were in the international global gateway cities, right? We had just tremendous aggregation and concentration of intellectual capital. This 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 draws into sort of like you know how quickly does that come back? Now remember, you know, people's memories, no matter how people people's memories are short, 
Okay. We could have, if we had the same conversation in, on September 13th, 2001, one could be tempted to say New York City will never recover. Okay. But it did. <laughs> right. And, 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 and this too shall pass. Right. So we shouldn't get too, too obsessed by the moment. Okay. And, and there will be a period of pause and gradual recovery, but our human nature is to be social animals. We want to be social animals. We want to aggregate. We want to coalesce. And so I do think um, the fact that if there is de-densification, it may be more driven by the demographics of people reaching certain life stages, right? And choosing to go needing some more space or, um, or, or, or going to an urbanized suburban node, okay? And maybe that trend gets gets uh, accelerated a, a bit uh, because of about the COVID nineteen lockdown, the Great Lockdown. Um, but I don't think you know our our human instincts to to be together, to be social, uh, have not been broken. It's a very good point, and so many thoughts uh, come to mind that we probably we don't have time to talk about right here. But uh, I strongly encourage uh, anyone who's listening to this podcast to look at the spring issue of A Fire Summit um, and take a look at, at Jeff's piece uh, on political risk. A great introduction to to his uh, contextualization of different municipalities' uh, political risk, and certainly the beginning of a much much longer discussion. So thank you so much, Jeff, for being a part of a fire podcast. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. It's a pleasure. And before we close out this podcast, I wanted to make sure we took some time to thank our underwriters, Prologis, JLL and Holland partners who make it possible for a fire to provide programming such as these podcasts. Thank you. This podcast is produced by a fire, the association for international real estate investors focused on commercial property in the United States. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. None of the content is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE. This is Gunnar Branson from the A-Fire podcast. Thank you for listening.